0: Well, I want to welcome you on this uh, very first Sunday of the new year, those here at the 930 service as well as those uh, who are worshiping in the Well Cafe today. Uh, This is uh, what we believe uh, an incredibly significant year in the life uh, of our church. Uh, We expect hopefully by the summer uh, to be breaking ground on a project to enhance and expand our ministry campus. We spent a lot of time uh, last fall talking about that and preparing for that. Uh, and, And whenever a church is involved in a project like that, there is there is a question that is often asked, and it's an appropriate question to be asked, uh, which is, as the church invests in itself essentially, investing in uh, our our life together, our ministry together, our our campus. Uh, The question is, well, what would that mean for for what we do for those beyond the boundaries of our ministry campus? What will it mean for uh, the work that we do in outreach to our local community? What will it mean uh, for what we're doing for people all around the world? And and as I shared with you last fall, uh, my my commitment to you is it's it's not going to change anything. Uh, but there's parts of that that I can't control. There's parts of that that belong to you. And so I'm excited to share with you today that over the course of our 11 Christmas Eve services and uh, throughout the month of December, uh, you gave $105,000 to Zoe Ministry, the partnership that we have with them. And this is the point where you should clap for yourselves. Um, And let me tell you more specifically why. I mean, I know that's a number and and, and you hear it without context. That's almost double what we gave in 2017. And so, in a year where, again, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, looking towards our future and continuing our work of making disciples, ensuring that there are others who will come behind us to continue the work that we are doing, again, in a year like that, uh, your generosity to that ministry uh, is almost double uh, what it was the year before. If you don't know anything about Zoe, uh, you can go to wearezoe.org, and you'll find out more about why we believe so strongly uh, in Zoe and why we are honored to be a part of the work uh, that they are doing. We are beginning uh, a brand new series uh, entitled What the Bible Doesn't Say, and your first thought might be, well, the Bible doesn't say a lot of things, so how long is this series going to be? And so, more specifically, we're talking about the things that we say that the Bible doesn't actually say. Uh, Things that are not necessarily grounded in how we understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They are often found in these phrases and clichés that we share with one another. We're not quite sure where they come from, but we think uh, they're somewhere in there. Uh, and, And what often happens is these ideas unintentionally take us in the wrong direction. Or we go through an experience in our life where uh, we find ourselves really confused by this simple phrase and and what it means uh, as we learn more about following Jesus. Or perhaps we go through a really difficult time in our life, and someone out of their desire to help shares something with us that actually only ends up adding to our pain. And so we're going to look at those over the course uh, of these next four weeks. And, and what we're going to start with today, uh, here's how I would describe it for you, kind of the overall uh, idea behind uh, something that we say or we find ourselves believing that the Bible doesn't actually say. Before I do that, I forgot one thing. I want to answer a question that is really kind of at the heart of this series. And I want to just kind of own my bias that I bring to this entire conversation. Uh, And it's an answer to this question what is the Bible? What is the Bible and how does it function in our life? And we'll come back to this each week because I think it has great implications for everything that we're going to talk about. But here's the two things I, w- I would just share with you as my, my perspective, my bias, if you will, that the Bible is the overarching story of God and God's relationship with God's world. You could, you could think of it as the unfolding story of God and God's relationship with God's world. And the second part of that is this, it does not answer every question. But it does enable a relationship with God, a God who is bigger than any question that we might ask. Oftentimes people people will come to me with a question uh, thinking that there is some secret answer book that I have that nobody else has. But, but the Bible isn't designed to, to — uh, it isn't written to answer every one of our questions, but rather to enable a relationship with God, the God who is bigger than any question uh, that we might ask. And again, we'll look at this each and every week because I think it has implications, and we'll talk more about those as we move through this series. So here's — here's how we would describe the thinking uh, that, again, we w- might describe as a half-truth uh, that we're looking at today. It's that God wants everybody to essentially just be a good person. And what God really wants is you to be nice. Just be nice to one another. And that the central goal God would have for your life is that you would be happy and that you would feel good about yourself. That the central goal God would have for your life is that you would be happy and you would feel good about yourself. And that phrase half-truth is really important because I want to give you an example of how this false thinking seeps into our way of thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So let me give you a portion of a scripture. It's actually one of my favorite scriptures, but it's not even the whole scripture. It's the second half of it. This is John 1010 b okay, which means the second half of it. Uh, this is Jesus, and Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Uh, if you have a New King James Version or an English Standard Version, that, uh, that last little phrase is translated uh, as a life more abundantly. Or in the Common English Bible, it's translated so that they could live life to its fullest. And so you hear just this One little piece of one scripture, I've come that they may have life and have have it to the full, and perhaps it sounds like what we just talked about, that that God's goal for your life would be that you would be happy and that you would feel good about yourself. Uh, This last fall, I I had the chance uh, with a a friend of mine to to lead a a Journeys of Paul cruise, uh, visiting the places where uh, the Apostle Paul Paul brought the good news uh, in the first century. And uh, my wife got to go with me. It's the first time we've ever done a cruise. And so we asked people who had done cruises before, you know, how do we prepare for this? You know, what what is this going to be like? And we found that people had fairly strong opinions uh, of what you should or should not do. And they weren't necessarily the same. You should take this medicine, this supplement, make sure you wear this patch. All sorts of different things. But what almost everyone said was, you know, it's really not going to be that big a deal. Because these ships, you know, they're huge and they've got all this incredible technology. I mean, the whole time it's just going to feel like you're just on solid ground. And nothing could have been further from the truth. I mean, that was not (laughs) accurate at all, especially the two days that we were at sea. And the two days that we were at sea also happened to be the two days that myself and my friend were supposed to lecture about the life of Paul to all of those who were part uh, of this particular journey. And so, the very first day at sea. I mean, we are tossing and turning. We are all over the place. You know, you're kind of just holding on. The host for the event, the person who was kind of there to take care of us, she was passing out medicine, like anti-nausea medicine, as people were coming in to the lecture. And I thought to myself, that's a first. That's never happened before. Like at the doors, people are passing out medicine so that you don't throw up in the middle of the sermon. That's And, and, and I thought, well, you know, when I talk I usually stand, so I decided to stand. And you know, I did the lecture and we had questions and answers, and at the end of it I thought, that was a really bad idea, to stand. I mean, I was, I was really, uh, my bearings were, were way off. And so the second time, the second day at sea, which was just like the first day, I mean, we're all over the place, I thought, well, I'm gonna sit in a bar stool. Certainly, this will be better. So, I went and got a bar stool and was sitting down in it. What I realized over the course of that hour is the whole hour the, the, the chair was trying to kick me out of the chair. I mean, I'm just sliding around, kind of holding on. It was worse. But that very first day, uh, very first lecture, we're walking out of this area and they had these pool tables. And, and the, the, they were built on this like gyroscope technology where they would move in relationship to the movement of the ship so that the table always stayed totally flat and level. It was fascinating just to watch it. And I began thinking to myself, I wonder how long I could get away with jumping up there to take a nap. Like, I want to be right on top of that pool table because this is flat. And, and then I thought, why don't they just build the ship like the pool table? I mean, that seems like it would work in my just kind of naive brain. But I mention that because that's really what most of us would say we want for our life. We want our life to be a nice, smooth, comfortable ride. We, we want our life to be pleasant. Uh, we want our life to, to be without worry. Uh, with, we, we run from potential suffering in our life, we, we resist any experience uh, that will cause us any sort of pain, we really have the expectation that life is kind of going to go the way we want it to. and It's always going to work out in our own best interest. And then something happens, and, and life throws us a curveball, and it doesn't end up heading in that direction, and we're surprised. And and we may even find ourselves thinking, what's the deal? I thought God wanted me to be happy. I mean, I read that somewhere. It's somewhere in there. I saw it on a t-shirt, you know, something about life full, happy, something. What is going on? I thought this is what God wanted for my life. God wants me to be happy. Uh, the uh, early 20th century theologian in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, Richard Niebuhr, writes this, uh, describing this false way of thinking. Uh, he, he describes it as a belief uh, in a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. In other words, if, if your whole understanding of the Christian faith is based on half of a verse in one of the Gospels, it's possible that you're missing the rest of the story. And so let me share with you just a few other passages that give us a fuller picture of what God's goal for our life might in fact be. So in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus shares a prediction of what will happen at the end of his life with his disciples. And keep in mind that these disciples have said yes to following Jesus because they believe he's the Messiah. And with the Messiah, this whole identity, came this expectation that he was somehow going to set the world right again, that he was going to restore the great kingdom of Israel. And in response, this is what Jesus says. This is how he describes his expectation. He says to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now just just note this too, by the way. The Son of Man is a phrase used in the Old Testament. It's from the book of Daniel. It's another way of referring to the Messiah. In other words, Jesus isn't saying to them, you know, I know you're, you kind of think I'm this superhero guy who's going to make everything all better, but I'm actually not, and things are going to head downhill pretty quickly. <laughs> that, that's not an, at all what Jesus is doing. In fact, he is identifying himself as the one who is the Messiah, but he is also saying that central to that identity, again, must, we see that two times, That the idea of suffering is central to what his identity is all about. And then it gets worse, okay? Because then at the very next verse, uh, he he says to them, uh, actually go back, I think we missed something. No? We didn't? Keep going. 22, 23. Yeah, here we go. He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So not only, not only must the Son of Man suffer, which was way outside their expectation, but Jesus then says, and guess what? You, you will too, because <laughs> that's what it means to be my disciple. And then he asks this challenging question. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Uh, Or you could look at Matthew's gospel. Matthew 5, chapter 5, 6, and 7. We often refer to that as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most extensive teachings of Jesus in any of the gospels. If you're brand new to the Christian faith, or if you know someone who's just trying to figure out what is Jesus all about, tell them to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a really good overview uh, of what the teachings of Jesus are all about. But near the end of that… Uh, in in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, this is what Jesus says about this life He is inviting people to enter into. He, He says, to do this, you must enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Or just set those aside for a moment and and let's just think about the implications of some of the things that we say we believe. We believe that disciples of Jesus are those who follow Jesus. So think about the last time that you found yourself following someone to get to an intended destination. It was somewhere that they knew how to get there and because you were following them, you didn't have to worry about directions, you just had to keep them in in front of you. You you had to make sure you didn't lose sight of them. As long as you followed them, you were going to end up where you wanted to go because they were leading you, and you were following them. And that's essentially what we see the disciples doing all throughout the Gospels. They're just following Jesus. Wherever He goes, they go. As, as he goes all around the Sea of Galilee to the, to the many communities there, to teaching about the, the, the kingdom of God, uh, the disciples are simply following along. Uh, when, he, when he travels north uh, up to Caesarea Philippi, and, and he asks them that question, who do you say that I am? The disciples followed him all the way up there. And then when he came south to Jerusalem… What are the disciples doing? They're just, they're just following Jesus. They're just going wherever Jesus is going to go. When he, uh, when he enters into the city, when he comes down the Mount of Olives and people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What are the disciples doing? They're following Jesus. As he goes into the temple every day, uh, in the last week of his life, challenging the religious leaders, what are the disciples doing? They're just following Jesus. They follow him into that room where he shares the Passover meal, which he knows, but they don't know yet, will be the final meal they share with him. And they hear him talk about bread and juice and broken body and shed blood. They don't quite know what that means, even though he said several times before, predicting what was going to happen in the end. They follow him all the way to the garden, all the way to the to the, to the point at which they begin to see this prediction coming true. Jesus is arrested and he's taken away and that's when the disciples scatter. And yet that's where Jesus told him that he was leading them all along. <laughs> that he was leading them to the place that is the cross. And, and you may think to yourself, but John ten ten that sounded really good. I like that abundant life thing. Let's go back to that. Isn't that also there? Well, it is, but let's look at the context. What Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, if you read from 1 to 10, he's talking about being the good shepherd, how he sees himself as the good shepherd. And he's talking about the care and the compassion of the good shepherd. And he's contrasting that with the one who is not the shepherd of the sheep the one who does not have their well-being in mind, the one who is actually their adversary. And so the full verse, John 10.10, says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. And so as you think about this maybe more wider picture of what Jesus taught, I I want you to hear a couple of convictions that we find not only in the teachings of Jesus, but in the writings of the New Testament. And what I want to invite you to think about is is just whether this resonates with your own experience. Uh, Whether you uh, have experienced this in your life and and you can somehow connect with some of these basic fundamental ideas that we find uh, in, in the New Testament writings that are really at the core of the Christian faith. The first is the challenge to claim this idea that I am a poor judge of what leads to happiness. That you are a poor judge of what leads to happiness. Let me just give you a few examples of that. So you go to the car dealership with no intention of buying a car. But then you look at it and the salesman says, would you like to take a test drive? And you get in the car. And you smell that new car smell that just overwhelms you and you just find yourself in the back of your head thinking, I gotta have this car, I gotta have this car, and what am I to do? Because I'm not supposed to buy a car. But, and then it has everything that you want, all the bells and whistles, all the technology, but most importantly it's got that, oh, this is just the most beautiful smell in the world. And so you find yourself buying the car, but if you've done that, you've probably realized that eventually the smell wears off, and depending on what you do in your car or how many kids you have, a whole new smell gets in the car, right? And it doesn't matter how many air fresheners you put in that car, the new car smell is not coming back, because the new car doesn't stay a new car. And maybe you've come to the realization after buying the new car that it really does what your old car did. It gets you from point A to point B. You thought this thing was going to create such joy and happiness in your life. And well, maybe, maybe it didn't. Or or maybe, maybe you might think about it uh, in, in in a different way. Maybe you have been in a moment in your life where you found yourself so stressed and, and just at your wits end and you thought, I need a vacation. I have got to get away from all this junk in my life. I've got, it's just, it's overwhelming me. I have to get away. I need to escape. I have to have a vacation. I can't afford it, but I absolutely need it. So I'm just going to put it on the credit card because I have got to get away. And you went away and you had the time of your life Until you came back home and you re-entered the life that you felt like you had to escape before, the only difference being now you had to figure out how to pay for all the fun that you just had. Or maybe you just experienced this with one of your kids at Christmas who, who, that everything was about convincing you that they had to have this, whatever it was for Christmas. I mean, life depended on it. Their entire future depended on it. Everyone else in their class at school was going to get this thing. And there is no way in the world they could return to school if they were the one kid who didn't get what everyone else was going to get. It would literally mean the end of their life. I mean, I have to have it. And school isn't even back yet. And it's already sitting in the corner of the room. We're actually a really poor at this. We're bad at, at judging what, what will actually lead to our happiness. And, and here's the second conviction, that there is a massive gap between happiness and significance. You think about that word significance, you might also think about purpose and meaning. The idea that you would live a life that is consequential. That at the end of your days you could say, what I invested my life in, it really mattered. Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and he was also a psychiatrist and so uh, after he was rescued he began working on a book uh, describing his experience but also his observations of of, of being there and, and, and sharing that awful experience with with so many and uh, the book man's search for meaning is is one of the uh, most best selling books of all time and uh, in the book he, he really shares about his observation that the response of the other prisoners, uh, those who were with him in the concentration camp, it had much less to do with their particular circumstances. and had much more to do with their awareness that they maintained the freedom to choose how they would respond to whatever suffering they had to endure. In the book, he writes that, the, uh, that we are driven towards a life that is meaningful And it is the meaning that we have in our lives that enables us to bear life's unavoidable experiences of suffering and pain. And near the end of his life, he died in 1997, but near the end of his life he said this, even more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. It's it's an incredible irony about life and and about this this pull that we have towards comfort and and ease. The irony is uh, that the suffering that we hope to avoid is often the road that leads to a significant life. It's the suffering that we hope to avoid that often is the road that leads to a significant life. And and just in case you need some examples, let me give you some easy examples of what that suffering might be. It, It might be, that, that you find yourself today in a job that has everything you would ever want. It's got all the benefits that you need, pays you a great salary, you're able to do some things that you never thought you were going to be able to do. Life is comfortable. But there has been for quite some time this, this ember burning in your heart and life, this sense that God was calling you to do something else with your life. Something that would require you leaving the comfort of the life that you had built that was comfortable and yet not really satisfying. And you haven't yet taken the leap. The suffering for someone here today might be that you need to quit your job. Because God has been calling you for quite some time into a new chapter of your life that is really scary. Scary but it's the road to a significant life. Maybe it's that calling, that, that, that desire that you have to live a more generous life, and yet you also feel within yourself this, this desire to hold on of, for, uh, to those things that you would like to keep for yourself, for your own security, and you, and, and you, and you just haven't yet opened up your life To allow that generosity that uh, that flows from receiving God's love to to flow out in the lives of others. Or maybe, maybe it's the courage to say to someone that you love, I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Or maybe it's the daringly brave confession you haven't shared yet with anyone else in your life, but you know that there are three words that someone else in your life needs to hear. You know that you need to say, I need help. And that the suffering you've been hoping to avoid is actually the road that leads to not only healing, but a significant life. If any of that makes sense, then maybe this last one will as well. Our pursuit of happiness threatens our life's significance. Our pursuit of happiness threatens our life's significance. It it has the ability to undermine what what will really matter about your life when you come to the end of your days. Um, I don't know where this quote comes from, but returning to the nautical theme for just a moment, I think it's uh, one that speaks well to what Jesus means when he talks about losing your life in order to save your life. Uh, The quote is this, a ship in harbor is safe. But that is not what ships are built for. What were you built for? What's your life about? Why are you here? What is, what is your life going to mean when you come to the end of your life? I, I want to invite you for just a moment to, if you would, I want to invite you just to close your eyes. I promise no one will mess with you. But just for a moment, I want you to imagine your life as a ship that has left the safety of a harbor and is now at sea. And and to think about your life right now and think about how turbulent and choppy those waters may be. How emphatically your heart and mind may be telling you to turn around to the shore that you left behind, seeking the comfort of calm waters, the assurance of solid ground. And just for a moment, I want you to consider that maybe Jesus is on the other side of whatever your life may be right now. And Jesus is inviting you to resist the temptation to turn back and escape the risk of living a fully significant life. Could it be that the very thing that you are running from is in fact what you actually need to actively pursue? That the road may be narrow, but but isn't the true fullness of life worth traveling that narrow path? That maybe today you need to ask yourself, are you in danger of giving away everything for something that in the end will turn out to be nothing? For what good would it be to gain the world but lose yourself along the way? Loving God, we are surrounded by messages every single day that tell us our life is about our comfort, our happiness, our pleasure, and it is no wonder that these ideas find their way into our thinking about a life with you. But we pray, Lord, that you will give us the fullness of your truth, and that in doing so, you would enable us to pursue a life that really is a life to the full. Help us, Lord, to embrace this irony that the fullness of life actually involves emptying ourselves for the sake of others and for the sake of your kingdom. Give us that wisdom, Lord, that only you can give to lead the life that only you can lead us to live, pursuing something more, much more than just our happiness, but pursuing a life that is significant. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.